So I will, um, I will answer uh, questions if you need. Um, yes, I, I did file the um, lawsuit. I mentioned that Sunday. It's now official. You can go online and look at it. I think Linda put it on um, my um, Facebook page, maybe, political Facebook page, something like that. Um, <clears throat> any questions? Any questions about it? Uh, Scott? Yes, sir. Okay, so the question is, if you win the lawsuit, what happens? Is there money exchange? I'm getting that question more than any other question, by the way. Um, no, there's no money exchanged. So that would be nice. Um, I mean, I was damaged, so um, I should get something. Pain and suffering. If it's pain and suffering, I should get pain and suffering every day I'm in that building. But... Um, no, so, so the lawsuit basically says this, um, and, and the defendant is uh, Governor Polis and Speaker McCluskey, okay? The reason that uh, Governor Polis is included in this is because the bill was uh, passed unconstitutionally, and since he's the last one, he signs it, then he's part of that lawsuit because he signed an unconstitutional bill. Now, there's no way he would have known that um, unless he, like, paid attention to the house, and we know he doesn't, but uh, so, so the, the lawsuit basically says my constitutional rights to represent almost 100,000 people was Ill illegally censured, and I did not get to um, speak and ask a simple thing. It's called having the bill read at length. It's a constitutional right, and, um, and I was... I was constantly ignored by the Speaker of the House. And she told me ahead of time she was going to ignore me. So, um, Because she, she literally, and I, I've said this on a couple of radio shows, and all of a sudden a bunch of conservatives are interviewing me. But, you know, interestingly, and I'm saying this for my captive online audience right now, that um, interestingly not one liberal media source has called me. Although they usually call me every week. Send emails, all that. Silence from all the liberals. Why? Because they know the Democrats are unhinged. They know they're out of line. They know they um, broke my constitutional rights. They know that Speaker McCluskey literally is lost control of that House the moment she stepped into the leadership of it. She should not be Speaker of the House. She, she rules by um, fiat and by bullying and by emotion. She doesn't run by the rules. And she did that to me. She broke the rules and was not supposed to. And so in the process, uh, the bill was passed unconstitutionally because she, she wouldn't call on me. She bullied me. I mean, I, you can call it bullying. She was bullying, but, you know, it doesn't, I don't feel any different. You know, it's not like she, uh, you know, offends me. Um, but she's just wrong. And so, so uh, we're suing over that bill, okay? So then what happens is, is that bill is deemed unconstitutional and it becomes null and void, um, which is really good because um, there were four bills passed from the House by the House in special session, and they were all horribly unconstitutional. They were uh, another one that I'm going to um, petition on a constitutional basis. 
was basically the, the thing that we just voted on before Prop HH. They just, re, they just resubmitted it in a little bit different language. Well, that's unconstitutional. We had just voted as a people that you can't do that, and they did it anyway because they assume that the people are not paying attention. And here's the stark reality. That's actually true. Most of the people in Colorado don't pay attention to this stuff. Um, and so, so, yeah, she broke the rules. She, she really did go outside of her authority and illegally censured me. And so uh, we're going to get that whole bill taken off the table. And um, I voted against it in the House, but there was only 19 of us that voted against it. Now uh, we have a court that will back up um, that we're taking it away. $182.7 million that uh, should not be spent by the taxpayer. And, um, and so here's the thing, though, is they're not used to Republicans standing up. They're not. And uh, me and a couple other uh, Republicans really just stand up and get in their face about stuff. And it drives them crazy, okay? Um, the, other, the other worse one, <laughs> I don't know if he's worse, but... I, he would probably like that moniker, but is, is a representative graph. He doesn't take anything from any of them either, and they attack him pretty regularly too. But we're just not taking their bullying. We're not going to let them break the rules, go against the Constitution, just because the Republican Jewsy just um, sit down and take it. And so there's no, I don't get any money or anything from this. We just get the bill taken away, which is huge. Um, this is huge because the bill was this. Um, the bill was, so we get Tabor refunds, right? So let's say that your Tabor refund this year is going to be $700. That's, that's about the range it is sometimes, seven, eight hundred, something like that. Sometimes it's much more. But let's say it's $700. Okay, what happened, they, they added a, this is the way the bill says it, they added a refund mechanism to Tabor, uh, a fourth. This, they already have three ways. In other words, a mechanism by which you receive your Tabor refunds. They added a fourth one that says people without Social Security cards can now get double the amount of refund that was going to be given. And then once that's all done, all the leftover gets refunded back to the taxpayer. Well, that's not legal. Okay, that's not. They passed it, but that's really not legal. So then what happens is, let's say you have 700 that you're going to get back. you got people with no Social Security cards, which means what? They're legals, and at the very least, they're not paying taxes. If you don't have a Social Security card, you're not paying taxes. And then they say, okay, if the refund was going to be 700 they add it up first, take the 700 they double it for them. So now they get 1400 back, and then when it's all done, they take whatever's left, and they refund it normally like a normal table refund, which means you'll get a couple hundred bucks, maybe. Maybe. Although you're the one who paid the taxes, they didn't. And they're getting twice as much as you, although you didn't pay the taxes. So it was a stupid bill. Um, I'm glad the uh, speaker lost her mind, because she really is unhinged. And, um, and so now we own the bill. I'm going to move for some things. Scott, I have a question for you. <clears throat> yes, sir. Two questions for you. Who, do you. Does this go to the Colorado Supreme Court? Who defends it? Who speaks? And how long does it take for them to render a decision? So there's, there's a few layers to this. Um, first, we put an injunction on the bill. I guess it's not called an injunction. It's a, um, a stay on the bill. So the bill's stuck now. It's not going to be moved forward at, uh, last week. Or, or two days ago. Uh, January 1 was when it was going to go into effect. Um, 
and now it's stuck, right? Um, I don't think it had a safety clause on it, so I'm pretty sure January 1 was when it was going to go in effect. I may be wrong about that. But whenever it was, it now has a stay on it. It's stuck. It's not going anywhere until this lawsuit's done. Um, the lawsuit may end up going to the Supreme Court. I doubt it. Uh, right now, it's just going to um, one of the courts. I, it's on the paperwork. You, you've got it there, Carolyn. Do you know which court it is? Well, a circuit court is appeals. Denver County District, which makes sense because um, this is not a city thing, it's, and it's, not a, it's a county thing because it's a state level, but it's county. So in other words, I'm elected in a, in a county election, so that's where this would be played out. And so here's the deal with this, is uh, it, I, the chances of it going to an appeals, like 10th Circuit, which is Colorado, um, or the Colorado Supreme Court is very, very slim because uh, it's such a slam dunk case we're not going to lose this. There is, there is almost an hour of video of me standing there with my hand raised trying to get her to call on me, and she wouldn't do it. Um, it's not like we're trying to prove something here. It's all on video, um, very blatantly on video. You can see when I requested to have it read, I, I gave him a card, because I'm not going to just shout out, that's not good decorum. We don't do that. She's always talking about decorum, and she breaks the rules more than any person sitting in that house. I don't know. I have no idea. This is new to me. <laughs> um, that part I don't know, but, but I think it'll actually, it's not going to drag through a long time because there's no reason to. Um, it'll go to the court. The court will make a decision on it, and, um, and, and there's already precedence. Three years ago, there was another lawsuit that was similar to this, and it wasn't as strong as mine, and they won that very simply. Okay, so um, there's, there's no doubt. In fact, uh, legal came to me, this is in the lawsuit, legal came to me 10 minutes later and said, we're sorry, the speaker shouldn't have done this, you were right, uh, you should have had the bill read at length, we're sorry that they broke the rules, blah, blah, blah. And then she finished by saying, but everything was moving so fast. And, and so I reminded her, not really, because... I did this for an hour. That's not really moving very fast. Um, and so, uh, and I'm not picking on legal, but, but legal is going to lean toward the speaker just because. Um, but, um, so yeah, this is a simple case. It's, it's not going to, I don't see it being appealed. I don't see, they're going to lose the case because the speaker's unhinged. It's on video all day long that day. We have a lot more than just the little simple outline of that um, legal case. There's a whole lot more to it. She, she, she should not be Speaker of the House. And, um, and so I don't see it going to an appeals, which means it'll never get to the Supreme Court. Um, no, <clears throat> because uh, basically nothing's happened. Only thing it was going to do was, was cost the taxpayers $182 million. So um, that money is still there. It hasn't gone anywhere. It wasn't going anywhere. But it's at the bank, right? It's what? It's at the bank? Hmm. It's, it's, in, it's on paper. Okay. It's on paper belonging to the taxpayers. Okay? Um, and then what will happen is the normal refund that we were going to get will be uh, done. There won't be another fourth refund mechanism. That, that stupidity will not be included in the bill now. So... 
I would think if a bill is unconstitutional and is passed, but it's unconstitutional, <coughs> it can be challenged. Unfortunately, it sounds like it has to be challenged in a court of law. Could you have challenged it even if she didn't? Probably not on that bill. I could explain why, but the, the bill that came up right after that where it was just a revisit of HH, uh, we can, I read to them on the floor in seconds and thirds from the Constitution how this was breaking the Constitution and from the previous bill that had been from two years ago that was being referenced in that bill, which explained that it was a Tabor refund. They were using Tabor refund, which is what we just voted on in Prop HH. You can't do that. And they did it anyway. That one I can easily attack. Well, easily is a, it's an easy attack constitutionally. Who knows how it's going to work out. Um, this one would have been a little bit more difficult to tell. Even though they can pass, so the Democrats have said this to us many times in the House. We're going to pass whatever bills we want. You guys figure it out legally. They know they're passing things that are unconstitutional. They've told us that multiple, multiple times. We know this is not constitutional. Figure it out in the courts. Well, you've got to have money to do that. This lawsuit is costing a lot of money. I don't have this money. These are... These are, I don't know yet who's going to pay all this. No, we do. We have people that have been giving to this, and this is, um, the, this is coming from the state party, the central committee. And um, so Dave Williams is, is uh, he and I have been working together on this. Um, but, yeah, we've been looking for donors and things like that. And I've got some more calls to make for people that, because that, um, this is expensive. Well, here's the thing. There's all four of those. Well, at least three of those bills in special session should be challenged constitutionally because they're they're wrong. They're illegal. But if somebody doesn't do it, then they don't do it. And if the governor signs it, then he signs it. It doesn't matter. There are plenty of statutes in the books. We every year we get a whole list of of uh, books this thick. All these that are all the statutes. In fact, Carolyn has my set from last year because I don't want them. But um, but they all these laws. There are laws in there that disagree with other laws by the hundreds. There are laws in there that disagree with the with um, the Constitution. With disagree with how our our state is set up. Um, disagree with the budget. There's all kinds of stuff. But unless somebody does something about it, this is what this is what. And it's it used to be Republicans that kind of led, and we didn't do this as much. But they still did too. But the Democrats are just off the hook, especially these last two or three years. They are literally, they have turned into Marxist, and they're bragging about it. I think there are eight Democrats in the House that are part of a socialist party um, and, and one that is a professed Marxist. These are representatives of, of our state, and they are, they are professed socialists. I'm not, like, digging under the covers to find that. It's on their website uh, that they're Marxists and socialists, and that's, that's where we are as a state right now. We, we have lost... We have lost our state. People keep saying, oh, we're losing it. No, we've lost our state. What we have to do is get it back. Uh, we literally have lost it, and it's crazy, the stuff that's being passed. Linda, did you have something? Just a quick question. As far as the process, with the special sessions, you know, typically with a bill you have the testimony <coughs> phase where the public can speak on it. I know that I was, I was listening and... I didn't see those opportunities. It was like really quickly, for me, it's just like uh, flying under the radar. Is that a true statement with this particular Yes. Um, so, so to bring some context to what she's saying, uh, Linda does come up and testify 
often at the Capitol. She is aware, more aware than than 99% of the people out there when Bill's what's happening. She testifies very well. Um, so when she says she was having a hard time keeping track of it, yes, um, here's the thing. Because it was a special session, um, you would almost have to just be up there because they're going to do it one day, then the next day, and the next day where something usually comes to committee and it's maybe two or three weeks or a month and a half or two months sometimes before it comes to the floor. And sometimes they go through committee and they purposely don't ever let it come to the floor because they want it to drop off the end of the calendar, especially if they're Republican bills. And so um, usually I have plenty of time, but because it was special session, it was going to be one day, the next day, thirds, we're voting, it's over. Because we were there for four days. So you've got to take four bills from the House, get them through, um, four bills from the Senate, but really one only came through from the Senate. Get them through committee in both groups, send them to the House in each of those groups, switch them from House to Senate in those groups, vote on them, and then get them back if there's changes and all that done, and we did all that in four days. So it's not, it's not we, we knew that was going to happen. The Republicans actually called for the special session, but we started calling for it in May. And the governor kept saying, nope, no, nope, no, nope. because why? He just knew for sure Prop HH was going to pass. And we all knew it wasn't. And when it didn't, now we've got this special emergency session and all the, the, the stupid drama that he did. Um, to do what? To, there was nothing positive that came out of that special session except we hired a few more, we, we paid for a few more positions to be hired, cost a few extra $100,000, and then passed a couple of unconstitutional things that aren't going to work anyway. That's all that came out of that special session. They took more of your money. That's it. That's all that happened. No tax breaks, no nothing. They just took more of your money. And we did everything we could. We fought it like crazy, but, but there's not very many of us. So, all right, anything else before I move on? <clears throat> Everybody good? I do start next Wednesday. I'm so excited. Can't wait. <clears throat> You know, I, I've, been, I, I've been saying this, I've been joking about this, but I'll just tell you how I, I'm really processing this. Because this is advice I give to other people all the time. If God calls you to do something, um, this would be my way of saying it to myself. I don't say it to other people this way. But if God calls you to do something, man up and do it. That doesn't just mean in body. That means in attitude and spirit. And uh, my attitude is not good. It's just not good. And I, f and I fight this and fight this. But I hate this. I dread going into that house. It is so dark and so evil. And, and, they, and, and they fight so much against the things of God. Blatantly fight against the things of God. And um, people ask me, because they think this is what bothers me the most, is all the negative press I get. Is I get so much negative press, so much. Um, but I don't care. I re that doesn't really bother me. Um, I don't even tell Linda about all this stuff, because she gets a little wired up sometimes. And uh, usually what happens is we'll be driving in the car, and Emily and I, if, she's, if Emily's with us, she'll say something about, hey, did you see that article done about you, Dad? And then we just kind of sit back and watch Linda go for like an hour. <clears throat> it's fun. It's just family fun, things we do. But um, that stuff doesn't bother me. What bothers me is walking in there and watching people stand up and fight for demonic mentalities. 
Fight for them. Argue, debate forever for their right to destroy people, kill babies. These are the things they do ad nauseum, and then they celebrate it. I, that's the part that kills me. I, I, just, I just don't like the mentality that people would just sit and look you in the face, blatantly lie, knowing that they're, they're hurting people and destroying people, and they walk away and laugh about it. And that happens constantly. I hate that. I hate that. Um, and so I've been really praying, God, help my attitude, because the Scripture still says... This is the day the Lord has made, and then I make the choice. This is the other half of the scripture. I will rejoice and be glad in it. I know this is the day the Lord has made, but I don't do so good on the I will rejoice part a lot of times. And here's the weird thing is I don't usually struggle with that. I haven't struggled with that mentality for 25 years. And now I'm struggling with this all over again. And I, and I hate it. And so... <clears throat> All right, <clears throat> Ezekiel 38, I told you we were going to eventually get here. We're here um, th this week, and then next week I'm going to talk about, um, well, I'm going to talk a little bit about 39 tonight also, and then we might get to chapter 40 next week, but 40 we're not going to spend a long time on. <clears throat> okay, so chapter 37, uh, what, is, what is chapter 37 about? I went over this a while back, but... Maybe you've read it and have been processing it. What is specifically the end of chapter 7? I mean, not 7, 37. Uh, what is the end of chapter 37, Ezekiel? What, what is that about? Anyone? <clears throat> Good answer. It's about um, uh, Israel becoming a nation again. Okay? Uh, th this is important because there is an order to things. Okay? Ezekiel 37 happens first. Israel becomes a nation again. And it's very descriptive. This is, not, this is not just some of the things that have happened over at different times in history where Israel became a nation and then, you know, even twice the temple was built, things like that. But there are some very specific things. And here's the re reality, guys. All the, all the things have to line up with Scripture for it to be um, Accurate. You can't have some things line up with Scripture, which sometimes in history those kind of things happen. Every single bit of it has to line up with Scripture, or it's not the event that's being prophesied about. Maybe a precursor, shadow of it, but it's not the event. Okay. And so here's here's where we get with this: is all the stuff that we're seeing in Ezekiel 37. Um, the only time that we've seen in history when that has happened is when Israel became a nation in 1948. Okay. So that's, that's what Ezekiel 37 is about. Now, now, why is that important? Because in the order, um, 38 comes after 37 in Numbers and in Scripture. Uh, it comes after 37. So that means 38 happens sometime after 37 has been fulfilled. Well, 37 is fulfilled in 1948 when Israel becomes a country again. You can read that. We spent some time on that. I'm not going to do that tonight. So then 38 comes sometime after. Okay, um, I, I've read a bunch of stuff. In fact, I, I was reading some stuff today that was explaining how chapter 37, 38, 39, and 40 all happened during the tribulation. Well, it can't happen during the tribulation. Some of this has to happen before the tribulation, right? Here's one of the reasons. What, is the, what, what starts the tribulation? What? 
Peace treaty with Israel starts the tribulation. Well, to have a peace treaty with Israel, you've got to have it Israel. Right? So 37 has to happen before the tribulation, uh, not during the tribulation. Um, uh, the battle of Gog and Magog cannot happen during the tribulation. Here's the reason. It never says it anywhere in the descriptions of the tribulation that there's a battle like this. Okay? After the, after the, um, the establishment of Israel in 1948, somewhere after that, Gog and Magog happens. This is not Revelation 20. Okay? Um, in fact, let me, let me just go there real quick so there's no confusion about this. Uh, Revelation 20 is the um, Battle of Armageddon. Well, it's actually after, but... Uh, let me jump down here. Uh, verse 7. The def- this is uh, verse 7. When the thousand years comes to an end. So when is this little part of Scripture? After the millennial reign. Okay, there's no doubt about that. There's no wondering or whatever. So, so sometimes people get Ezekiel 38 confused with Revelation 20. And they say, well, they, because they both mention Gog and Magog, so it must be the same thing must be the same battle. There's some major, major scriptural problems with that. Okay, Satan will be led out of his prison. He will go out to deceive the nations called Gog and Magog in every corner of the earth. Okay, Why do you think, because let's take a, I'll finish this, but let's take the assumption that this is not Gog and Magog in 38, Ezekiel 38. Then why does John use the, the terminology Gog and Magog? Okay, I'll tell you. <laughs> uh, Gog is most likely um, the Antichrist. Or if not, I'm saying in 38, most likely the Antichrist that's building up, or at least the, the, like the, uh, the precursor to the Antichrist. In other words, let me, let me use Muslim mentality because they're the ones who are, this, they're the players in this, okay? Um, according to the Quran, you have, the, um, uh, Ahmadinejad used to say he was this, the 12th Imam, which is the, like the John the Baptist for the Messiah. Okay. So in, in the Quran, you have the, the voice crying out in the wilderness, the one that prepares the way for the Messiah. Is it the Mujahideen or something like that? But um, and then you have the, the Quranic, the Islamic Messiah, okay? The, the, the Quran is actually very accurate about their prophecies about this, except they're opposite. They say it's the Messiah. It's actually who we know to be, the Antichrist. Um, they believe that Jesus, when he comes back, he's going to be the false prophet or the Antichrist, and their Antichrist is going to be Messiah, okay? So, and because if you lay, if you... If you overlay Scripture, um, uh, Revelation and other Scriptures about the Antichrist, but if you overlay Revelation and the Quran about all the details, they match up almost exactly, but they're the opposites. Okay, they're opposite people. Okay, now with that, you've got somebody that is preparing the way. So God could be the preparer for the for the Antichrist, the uh, 
the John the Baptist for the Antichrist, or it could be the Antichrist. So with that, in Revelation 20, you got the mentality of Gog and Magog, which is the land, the big mass experience massive expanse of land <clears throat> outside of Israel, and you got the spirit of Antichrist. Well, Satan is the one who infills the Antichrist, if that's, and if that's Gog, which I think it is, he infills the Antichrist at the three-and-a-half-year mark. Okay, So Gog is, is literally possessed by Satan at the three-and-a-half-year mark of the tribulation. So to, for John to use the, the terminology Gog and Magog here, is, is a, a continuation of the thought process that's starting. It actually starts much earlier, but specifically in Ezekiel 38. Okay? It's, not, it's not the battle of Ezekiel 38, and here's part of the reason we know. Um, he will gather together for a battle, mighty army as numberless as the sand along the seashore. Um, the, 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 in Ezekiel 38, there's, we know the exact countries that are involved. It's not just a numberless amount of people. You say, well, that's a big stretch. That's not enough conclusive evidence. Okay. So, <clears throat> um, and I saw as they went upon the, broad, upon the broad plain of the earth and surrounded God's people in the beloved city. Well, that kind of sounds like Ezekiel 38, right? But fire from heaven came down on the attacking armies and consumed them. That's not what happens in Ezekiel 38. That happens after they're dead, but only in the countries, not on the armies. Okay? And we're going to look at that. So this cannot be the same battle. There's too many things that are different about it. Plus, um, here's, here's one of the biggest. Chapter 37 in Ezekiel is the um, Israel becoming a nation again. Chapter 38 and 39 is the battle of Gog and Magog. What is chapter 40? What? Building of the temple. That doesn't happen. That doesn't happen after the Battle of Armageddon. But in Ezekiel, it's it's following the Battle of Gog and Magog. And then they come into Israel. This is way before Jesus um, takes up his throne there. This is this is like pre and the beginning of. In fact, the way that my timeline, the way I look at this is. Gog and Magog happen. It sets up the potential for the tribulation and the sign of the peace treaty. In fact, I'll explain that. Um, and then uh, the, the temple begins to be built. At the three-and-a-half-year mark, the Antichrist steps into the temple and desecrates the temple, right? That's called the abomination of desolation or desecration. Well, here's why I think the Antichrist is stepping into the temple on the three-and-a-half-year mark. He's dedicating the temple. This is the dedication of the temple um, for everybody to be worshiping in during the tribulation. And it doesn't mean it hadn't opened. This is, the, this, is the, this is the hard opening, not the soft opening. could be earlier. But he dedicates it. I'm at that particular time frame, and that's when he desecrates it, call, declares himself to be God in the temple now that it's finished, and, uh, and takes that moniker of God. And a lot of the Jews go, wait a second, he can't be God. Because there's so many reasons that he's already proved he can't be. That's when Satan possesses him. And that's when you have the 144,000 Jews, uh, evangelists that go, go around the world and evangelize and all that stuff. Okay. All right. So, so therefore, um, Ezekiel 38 and 39 cannot be Revelation 20. All right. You following me? All right. 
Now let's go back to um, Ezekiel. 38. All right, this is another message that came to me from the Lord. Son of man, turn and face Gog of the land of Magog, the prince who rules over the nations of Meshech and Tubal, and prophesy against him. Give him this message from the sovereign Lord. Gog, I am your enemy. Okay, here's, here's something I think is important. Um, Magog is not exactly the same thing as Meshech and Tubal. Parts, I, I believe that parts of Meshech and Tubal are, are included in Magog. The, the reason I say that is I, I see where a lot of people say that the, um, whoever is the leader of Russia is Gog. I don't necessarily think so. In fact, I lean very strongly against that. Um, that comes, it, it depends on what your starting point is for eschatology. Mine is not uh, rebuilding of the Roman Empire. Okay? Mine is um, Muslim countries. Right, like the ten horns, and the one horn comes out. And I don't believe that's the Roman Empire coming alive again. And, and most eschatology preachers do believe that, but I don't. I believe that those ten horns are Muslim countries, not uh, Roman Empire countries. And that's why they say, well, Gog is going to be the leader of Magog or the president of Russia, or whatever the case is. Which, I mean, president of Russia is not even the term now. It's just Putin. Right? He did away with president. Um, so I, I just don't believe that the leader of Russia, I believe that whoever Gog is convinces Russia um, and is connected to Russia but is not the leader of Russia, okay? And I've got a bunch of ideas how that fits like in the next two years, but assuming that maybe it's not in the next two years, I, I won't go over all that. So um, give him this message from the sovereign Lord. Gog, I am your enemy. I will turn you around and put hooks in your jaws to lead you out with your whole army, your horses and chariots, charioteers and full armor and a great horde armed with shields and swords. Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya will join you too, all their weapons. Gomer and all its armies will also join you along with the armies of Bethor, Garma, from the distant north and many others. Get ready, be prepared, keep all the armies around you, mobilize and take command of them. A long time from now, you will be called into action. Okay, So, so there is a building up there's a saber rattling, building up mentality, and then he says, um, a long time from now we'd be called into action. Okay? This is, this is the prophetic concept that Ezekiel is writing about to make sure that people know it's not happening like during his lifetime. Okay? In the distant future, you will swoop down on the land of Israel, which will be enjoying peace. Okay? I've told you before, I looked this up. This word peace here, is not properly translated, okay? It should be translated security or safety, okay? And in many translations it is, by the way. After recovering from war and after its people have returned from many lands to the mountains of Israel, which is Ezekiel 37, okay? After they've returned to Israel, Ezekiel 37, then he says this is happening, and they have great strength or safety, but not peace, um, you and all your allies, a vast and awesome army, will row down on them like a storm and cover the land like a cloud. This is what the sovereign Lord says. At that time, evil thoughts will come to your mind and you will devise a wicked scheme. You will say, Israel is an unprotected land filled with unwalled villages. Um, during the time of Ezekiel, that wasn't a thing. If you look at Israel now, 
Um, yeah, the, the old city has got the walls of Jerusalem. The old city does, but Jerusalem is not a walled city. You understand what I'm saying? The old city is, and it's got walls that can be destroyed with one bomb, but, but it's not a walled city anymore. For them to say, why would you have unprotected land filled with unwalled cities? They, that would be a, a weird context um, 2,500 years ago. They built walls because the armament and the weaponry at the time was, would be um, greatly pushed back by the great walls, Okay. <clears throat> I will march against her and destroy these people who live in such confidence. That's closer to the mentality rather than peace. Earlier is this confidence. I will go to those formerly desolate cities that are now filled with people. Usually this, somebody quotes this around here. I've read, so, um, so Mark Twain um, was a big traveler and he used to ride a lot. And he's got a book. In fact, I have it in here. I could should tell you the name of it. I think it's something like My Travels or something. But... Uh, Mark Twain writes this book where he just writes about his travels, and he went all over the place, went to Australia, went to um, the Middle East, traveled all over the Middle East, all these kind of things. And he just writes about it, and he's just a creative, funny, funny, entertaining writer. Well, when he gets to Israel, he writes about this. So this would have been um, early 1900s, and he writes about Israel. And he talks about how desolate it is. There's nobody there, and it's all desert. And he, and he travels all over. It's not like he was just in the southern part of Israel, which is very dry and desert. Okay, um, That's where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. Very, very, very dry area. Just no, like zero vegetation. Just rolling hills of dirt rock stuff for forever. Okay? But, but I, I did find out about 100,000 people live in that area. Most of them are Bedouins. But um, the, the rest of Israel, he's talking about it being desert too. If you go to Israel today, that is not the case. Interestingly, Scripture talks about this a handful of times that in the last days that the Lord will cause Israel to flourish and blossom. And this is one of the cool things. When I was in Israel, this is, I've been married 33, eight years ago, um, Lynn and I went to Israel for our 25th anniversary. Um, they were th these people were showing us these these projects where they um, they uh, water f massive massive fields all over the country, and the place they get their water and and Israel is at that time definitely but still now they were they were developing and leading the technology on this. This was seawater that they were desalinating and watering crops with. That's cool, and also prophetic. Biblical, okay? So, um, <clears throat> uh, let's see. Formerly, formerly desolate cities are now filled with people who have returned from exile in many nations. That's Ezekiel 37. That happened in 1948. I will capture vast amounts of plunder, for the people are rich with livestock and other possessions now. Um, they think the whole world revolves around them. But Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish will ask, do you really think the armies you have gathered can rob them of silver and gold? Do you think you can drive away their livestock and seize their goods and carry off their plunder? Verse 14, therefore, son of man, prophesy against Gog. Give him this message from the sovereign Lord. When my people are living in peace, this, this word is not shalom in Hebrew. It should be translated strength or safety. 
I don't know why the New Living does this. I, I really like this translation, but they got that one wrong. When my people are living in strength and safety, not peace. Because sometimes that's how people argue this. Well, Israel hasn't lived in peace literally since the day after they became a country, which is true. 1948, they became a country. The next day, they were invaded by, by many Arab countries with no army, no structure, no anything, and they defeated them. In fact, I just saw an interview recently. I think this was on um, Joel Rosenberg's, uh, I think pretty sure it was Joel Rosenberg's website. But he, but he was talking to this, he interviewed a, um, a guy that used to be a, a, a Hamas terrorist from Gaza that got saved. And now this guy goes into uh, the, and, and connects with the Hamas people. The, the Hamas are the terrorists. Gazans are the other people, okay? Hamas is the terrorist that live in Gaza and uh, control Gaza. But he's been talking about how that many, many um, Gazans are getting saved, not Hamas, but many Gazans are getting saved because of the pressure that Hamas is putting and because of the brutality. In fact, after the invasion a couple months ago from Hamas, many Gazans are listening to evangelists in ways they haven't ever before. Because they, they were horrified by the brutality of their own country and Hamas. Well, this guy was talking about how um, uh, um, th- that the, this, the strength of Israel, and he said, how can Israel, who has never had a day of peace since they became a country, defeat everybody that comes against them? And he goes into this description of that, and I thought, man, that is straight from Scripture. How, how do they keep defeating? Because God said, and I read this a, a couple months ago, but once he, once he makes them a country again, he says, you will never be defeated again. You will never have your country taken from you again. That's, that's what is happening right now. Think about the Six-Day War when they were fighting with Egypt. How can Egypt be defeated by Israel the day after they become a country? How can Israel defeat many uh, Arab countries that came against them in just massive amounts? They didn't even have a military. They had like three planes. Look this up. They had like three planes that were given to them from France, I believe. Well, that means they were never used. Okay, so... I saw an ad online one time, um, French rifle for sale, never used, only dropped once. All right. <clears throat> he says, but Sheba and Dan and the merchants of Tarshish will ask, do you really think the armies you have gathered can rob them of silver and gold? Do you think you can drive away their livestock and seize their goods and carry off plunder? Therefore, son of man, prophesy against God, give him this message. When my people are living in strength, not peace, in their land, then you will rouse yourself. You will come from your homeland in the distant north. Okay? We're going to look at some maps here in a second. With your vast cavalry and your mighty army, and you will attack my people Israel, covering their land like a cloud. Now, this is, the Lord is prophesying to Gog about this. What the Lord does not tell Gog is, You're going to come down here to attack, but you never will. 
He just told them, you're going to come and attack and destroy Israel like a horde. Except they never attack. And they destroy nothing. But they are destroyed. Okay? Um, At that time in the distant future, I will bring you against my land as everyone watches, and my holiness will be displayed by what happens next, Gog. God does this all through Scripture, but it's interesting to me. He says, God, come down and attack. My holiness will be displayed when you do that. God's like, all right, we're doing this. We got this. God doesn't say you're going to attack and win. He tells Gog, Gog, I'm going to display my holiness when you come down to do this. Okay. Then all the nations will know that I am the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord asks. Are you the one I was talking about long ago when I announced through Israel's prophets that in the future I would bring you against my people? But this is what the sovereign Lord says. When Gog invades the land of Israel, my fury will boil over. In my jealousy and blazing anger, I promise a mighty shaking in the land of Israel on that day. All the, oh, and also let me, let me mention this. I'm going to show you something on a map that I think, okay, it's just my supposition here, but I think... This is interesting to me. Um, when he says, um, when Gog invades the land of Israel, keep that in mind because we're going to look at that later. right? Because I don't think that actually happens, and I'm going to show you something on a map about that. All right. Um, I, will sum, I will summon the sword against you in all the hills of Israel, says the sovereign Lord. Your men will tor- turn their swords against each other. I will punish you and your armies with disease and bloodshed, I will send torrential rain, hellstorm, hellstones, fire and burning sulfur. In this way, I will show my greatness and holiness, and I will make myself known to all the nations of the world, and then they will know that I am the Lord. So, let's go to the first picture. Okay, this is um, <clears throat> this is the map of the countries that are mentioned earlier. All right. Um, you see the little red circle? That's basically where Israel is. I mean, it's so small, you can barely see it on this map, right? You realize Israel is like the size of Maine. I think there's like 14 people live in Maine. That's why they kept voting in Kennedys. But, so Israel, tiny, tiny little strip right there, right inside the red circle. These countries around here are where... Um, are the countries that are mentioned in the first part of the chapter. Meshech and Tubal is the blue right there, right part of south and uh, west of Magog. So I don't think that the leader of Russia is Gog. I may be wrong about that. It's not a strong enough point to argue, but I just don't think so because it specifically says Magog separate than those two. Why would he say those two separate if he was just meaning the leader of Magog? Right? That's just my thinking. Okay? I think little things like that matter in Scripture. When something is said, how it looks, um, the order it comes in. I mean, you've got to go back sometimes to the original uh, language to get the right order and different things. But, if, but I think order matters and I think details matter. And when you have separate subjects... Don't just include them together. I think there's reasons for those separate subjects. Okay, so you have... Now, this is interesting because you see where you purple, you have Persia, right? Uh, Persia is what today? Iran, okay? Now, look at this. To the, to the west of Persia is actually modern-day Iran. It includes 
modern-day Iran, but not all of it. I think this is very important when it comes to end times, okay? So then you have Iran, you have Syria, and then you have Israel right there on the edge coming down. Okay, then down at the bottom you have Egypt here above Ethiopia. Egypt is not mentioned um, for, for, for decades and decades and decades in eschatology teaching. Guys could not figure out why Egypt would not be included in this list. Because the, the Six-Day War was Egypt. Egypt used to be one of the biggest, the biggest aggressor in that day against Israel. But Egypt is not a big aggressor against Egypt, uh, Israel today. Well, nobody would have guessed that 50 years ago. Nobody would have guessed that 30 years ago, 20 years ago. All of a sudden, in the last decade, Egypt has begun to make changes and changes. In the last handful of years, Egypt has become a trading um, partner and even a, a, um, not an ally, but not an, a, a negative against Israel. Well, nobody would have anticipated that. But they're not included in the list in, in Ezekiel 37. I, I just think those kind of things are cool. Okay? Now, here's something interesting. We're going to come back to this map in a second, but I want you to pay attention to the white area. Okay, all the white area between Put, Ethiopia, Persia, um, Gomer, all that kind of stuff. Okay, now the blue line that goes across from Persia upwards, you see that blue line? That is Iran. That is through Iran right now and through Syria. Okay, now it says that the battle, the armies of Gog and Magog and, the, and all these Arab countries, they're going to come down and they're going to invade Israel. I don't think they actually invade what we call Israel today. Let me show you this. Next picture. This is Israel in the Bible. This is the land God promised to Israel. Do you see tiny little Israel along the edge of the water there? That's modern Israel a little bit greater land than that is what the, the, when they crossed the Jordan and they took the, the land, the 12 tribes, some two stayed on one side of the Jordan, the other 10 went across. Um, they never, the Israelites have never, ever, ever come close to taking all their land. Ever. Okay? This is what God considers to be Israel. He told them that when he told them to take the land. They never obeyed God completely. And he also told them to get rid of all the people in the land, completely get rid of it because that's where the sin and the idol worship and everything else is going to come in. And they didn't do it. And they would, they would intermarry. They would do all this stuff with people that served other gods. And that was always their downfall and the, the brokenness of who they are. Okay? Now, God says that he's going to bring all of these other countries and to attack Israel. Right? And he's, they're going to swoop down. Let's go back to the other map. This is the land that's not those countries right now. Now you say, yeah, but it includes Saudi Arabia, Iran, Syria, Egypt. Okay, keep that picture in mind. Let's go back to the other picture. That is basically the same land, except Saudi Arabia comes down a little bit farther. But all of the rest of it is the countries, except for the, the, the part of Turkey up there. Everything else is the land that God told them to take, and they never took it. Now let's go back to the other one again. And these are all the countries surrounding them that God's going to have come to the land of Israel. 
I, I just don't think it's coincidence. Now, I am making a supposition that the Lord is coming soonly. Okay, and, I, and I'm making the supposition that Ezekiel 38 and 39, we're on the brink of that happening here pretty quick. Okay, I don't think it's coincidence that these two maps are so similar and that this is the land that God said to them originally, this is your land. They never, ever took it. They never did anything with it. Okay, let's go to um, chapter 39. Son of man, prophesy against Gog. Give him this message from the sovereign Lord. I am your enemy, O Gog, ruler of the nations of Meshach and Tubal. Am I in the same thing here? Oh, no, okay. I will turn you around and drive you toward the mountains of Israel, bringing you from the distant north. Now, this is, this is something because he's, he's repeating the story, but now he's going to go into detail of how this is going to happen. He's going to do one more layer of that. This is pretty consistent when you come to prophecy. You have the big picture, then you layer it, the next, the details, and then one more layer kind of thing. It's the same thing that happens in Genesis 1 and 2, right? The Lord says, I'm going to... We're, I'm going to create the heavens and the earth, and he does it. And then he comes back and explains each of the, the days of creation kind of thing. Okay. Um, I will knock the bow from your left hand and arrows from your right hand, and I will leave you helpless. You and your army and your allies will die on the mountains. I will feed you to the vultures and wild animals. You will fall in the open fields, for I have spoken, says the sovereign Lord. I will rain down fire on Magog and all your allies who live safely on the coast. Now, this is the part I was talking about that's different than Revelation 20. I will rain down fire on Magog. These armies are not in Magog. They're all surrounding Israel now, right? And all those who live safely on the coast. I, I think what is happening, and I read, um, I think this, again, is one of Joel Rosenberg's books, but I think it's fictional, but he describes this. And after the armies are killed, the capital cities and all, that's the way he describes it. I don't know if that's how it happens. The capital cities and all these countries and all this kind of stuff, that God uh, sends hailstorms down and things like that. I have a little bit different belief, but I do believe that when he says that, that he's going to do this on Magog and the cities on the coast of so the allies, these countries that are involved here, that um, this is separate from the battle. This happens after the battle. Okay, and, you, and you'll see that here in a minute. All right, you will, um, then you will know that I am the Lord. In this way, I will make my name, my holy name known among my people of Israel, and I will not let anyone bring shame on it. And the nations, too, will know that I am the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. That day of judgment will come, says the Sovereign Lord. Everything will happen just as I declared it. Then the people in the towns of Israel will go out and pick up your small and large shields, bows and arrows, javelin and spear, javelins and spears, and they will use them for food. There will be enough for fuel, not food. There will be enough to last them seven years. I have, I have a little bit of a question about this because that kind of catches me. How would these bows and spears and shields be able to burn for seven years? You say, well, there's a lot. How much would a lot have to be to fuel all of Israel for seven years. What? I, I think there's more to it than what we're seeing here. Ezekiel is describing something um, 2,500, well, more than that, 2,600, 2,700 years ago. The same way John tries to describe stuff in Revelation, he doesn't, 
if you, if you attach it to things, you can say, oh, that's probably, it could be what he's describing. But he didn't know, how is John going to describe a motor inside of a military-type vehicle? Do you understand what I'm saying? So now um, Ezekiel is saying this is going to fuel Israel for seven years. I believe it's not a stack of wooden bows. I think it's something that has the ability to fuel up, which potentially could be, and this is pure speculation, okay? But uh, it could be something like uh, nuclear power or those kind of things um, that's going to fuel Israel for seven years. You say, why seven years? Why seven years? Does that mean that's how long the fuel lasts? Huh? I believe it is. I believe Gog and Magog happen before the tribulation. The battle happens, and I believe that battle sets up the signing of the peace treaty, and that begins the tribulation, and they are fueled for that seven years. I don't think the fuel is limited to seven years, but the earth is. The end of that seven years, it's done. They don't need fuel for seven and a half, because now we've gone into the Battle of Armageddon, I mean, the, the um, Battle of Armageddon, Millennial Reign, right? This is, the, the, the sequence of events are very clearly laid out in Scripture. There's no doubt what's going on here. Okay, so, in my opinion, maybe some people see it different. So, um, this stuff will last the entire tribulation. Israel will be fueled by whatever those armies bring to the table. They won't need to cut wood from the fields or forests, for these weapons will give them all the fuel they need. They will plunder those who plan to plunder them, and they will rob those who plan to rob them, says the Sovereign Lord. I will make a vast graveyard for Gog and his hordes in the valley of the travelers east of the Dead Sea. I will block the way of those who travel there, and they will change the name of the place to the valley of Gog's hordes. Um, down in verse 16, I'm going to read this, but down in verse 16 it says, There will be a town there named Hamanah, which means horde, and this will be the Valley of Gog's hordes. I, I did some studying on this. I don't know how accurate this is, but it seems to be good enough uh, because we don't actually know where this is. But let's look at the last picture. This is where um, some people say, because we do know it's east of the water, right? It's east of the sea, and they think that's where the red dot is, where the Valley of Haman Gog is, or the, Gog, or the Valley of Hordes, um, where they bury all the people. We do know it's the east of the sea, which is interesting because that's pretty desolate land out there. Um, and it happens to be in what country? Jordan. I, if this is right. Well, I don't know if this is right. But I do know it's east of the sea. And that's Jordan. I do know that part is right. Right? So here's the deal with that. Israel's going to go bury all of these armies in Jordan. How is Jordan going to allow them to do this? Jordan doesn't like Israel. They don't get along with Israel. Why are they going to let them bury all of these dead bodies? And, and the dead bodies are stacked so high people cannot move around the outside of Israel. And there's more descriptors of that. But this is, this is hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds and potentially millions of soldiers from all of these countries. And they're just going to bury them all in Jordan? Here's something I want you to process. Because we do know they are, okay? We know, he tells us, 
They're going to bury him east of the Dead Sea. That's Jordan, so they're going to be burying him in Jordan. So here's the, here's the question. Well, here, here's, my, here's my posit. For years and years, I said this a few weeks ago, um, but, I, but I really strongly believe this. In fact, uh, the guy that was here um, recently, um, Robert Spencer, when he was on the Thursday night thing, and, and, he, and the, he's truly an expert on Islam. He does Jihad Watch. Uh, the guy's been doing this since just right after 9-11. Very knowledgeable guy in these things. Um, he and I talked about this for a little while. Not a long time. And I said, this is my posit. And, um, but so this is what I think. All right? This, this goes against everything you've heard about this. All right? Um, so either I'm a complete idiot or God has given me way cool revelation. I'm going to lean that way. All right? Um, but here's what I think. So for years and years and years, I thought this, everything I've ever heard of teaching, any eschatological teaching, anything has always been this, that the Israel has got their back against the wall. Nobody, America's not coming to their aid. England's not coming to their aid. Australia's not coming to their aid, blah, blah, blah. The list of, of normal um, allies are not coming to their aid, and they have to sign a peace treaty with the Antichrist um, against the... Uh, uh, from the rest of the world, right? Peace treaty between them and the rest of the world, and it's brokered by the Antichrist. That's, that's basically uh, what Scripture explains, except for one thing that I believe is different. I don't think Israel has their back against the wall. I don't think they're running scared. I think they're in the driver's seat, and I think the rest of the world is scared to death of them. Why? Because all of these countries just came against them and were defeated, destroyed, killed instantly by the Spirit of God right around their country, and they did not get one scratch. God destroyed all these other countries. Because I believe the Battle of Gog and Magog happened right before the signing of the peace treaty. You got Israel being established, Battle of Gog and Magog, and then the building of the temple during the first part of the tribulation. And I believe the reason that everybody signs a peace treaty is because everybody's scared to death of Israel. Now, this is part of what backs it up for me, is then they go into Jordan and say, oh, by the way, we're going to bury a million bodies in your country. You good with that? And Jordan's like, yeah, we're good. Why else? Can you explain one reason right now? Under right now circumstances, why Jordan would let Israel bury a million bodies. I'm just, a million's arbitrary. Why would they let them bury all those bodies in their country? Of all of their Muslim neighbors. Do, do, you, do, you, do you see the sequence in my mind at least how it's working? It may not be working in your mind that way, but it, it's working in mine. I don't think Israel's got their back against the wall. And I don't think they need America at that point. I don't think they need all these other countries. They only needed one person, and that was God. And he flattened everybody. And now everybody is scared. And the Antichrist says, I got this. Israel, would you mind signing a peace treaty? Now, here's the interesting thing about Israel. Israel has always been looking. In fact, probably the statistics are saying probably half the country of Israel right now would, has been wanting to sign a peace treaty, give their land, do whatever with Palestine, because they, they believe that they sign a peace treaty, everybody will stop attacking them. Now, I strongly disagree with that. In fact, I was reading a book last night about this, and these guys were arguing strongly that if we can just convince the hardliners in Israel to sign this peace treaty, the wars will stop. It is not true. 
um, Palestine has been given opportunities to sign peace treaties for land, and they've denied it every single time. Why? Uh, river to the sea. They don't want to sign a peace treaty. They want to destroy the Jewish people, eradicate them, annihilate them. So, so Jordan then says, sure, come over, plant all these bodies in our country. No, unless they're scared, unless they truly have the fear of the Lord in them. That's why I think the battle of Gog and Magog happens right before, and then Israel is in the driver's seat. But Israel is ready to sign a peace treaty, whatever. Just leave us alone. They've been saying that forever. Just leave us alone. So they sign the peace treaty, and that starts the tribulation. Right? Peace treaty is still not a good thing. It's brokered by the Antichrist. It's still not a good thing. Okay? So when you guys go back to Valley Forge, you tell your professors what I just said. All right? You tell them. This is how you start the conversation. I know this amazingly smart pastor in Colorado. Okay? All right. Um, everyone in Israel will help bury the body. Okay, let me back up because I missed. It will block the way of those who travel there, and they will change the name of the place to the Valley of Gog's hordes. It will take seven months for the people of Israel to bury the bodies and cleanse the land. Everyone in Israel will help, for it will be a glorious victor, victory for Israel when I demonstrate my glory on that day, says the Sovereign Lord. After seven months, and this goes back into some of the potential radioactive mentality. Look at this. After seven months, teams of men will be appointed to search the land for skeletons to bury, so the land will be made clean again. I've read lots of good stuff, and I think this is legit, about the fact that dead bodies on the land make the land unclean, and the people touching the bodies make them unclean. I get that, but why, after they've taken all the bodies and they're just bones in the dirt, why do they come back to make it clean again? Okay, I think, this is pure speculation, but there might be a reason that the land is still not clean in a, um, in a geopolitical sense. In other words, like um, radioactive weapons or whatever the case out there. Maybe, maybe not, okay? Um, whenever the bones are found, a marker will be set up so the burial crews will take them to be buried in the Valley of Gog's hordes. There will be a town there named Hamana, which means horde, and so the land will be finally clean, cleansed. Um, Okay, and then it goes through the sacrifices and all the stuff, and then it sets up for the temple. All right? So, a lot of stuff, a lot of things. Um, any questions? Process, just comments, whatever. Yes, ma'am. Benjamin Netanyahu, if I pronounce that correctly. Wasn't he trying to do an economic path through from Israel up to Europe or something along those lines. I can't remember. And I'm wondering if that has any ties, impacts. Do you, does I, that even ring a bell with you? Yes, it does. I think all of that stuff plays into this. Um, okay, but even to say it that way, I think you always have to have the disclaimer. This is assuming that this stuff is happening soon, which I do believe it is, okay? Um, I believe that we're, we're already in the... Uh, end time rush, the the end time flow. Okay, I think I think up until a few years ago we were talking about the end time stuff. Now we're just rushing toward it um, with no stop. Okay, so and that comes from I've talked about this. I don't have time to explain this, but the 
70 to 80 years, we're in that window, and I think that's important in this. So with all that said, all these things matter if the Lord is coming back soon, like five, ten years max kind of thing. If it doesn't, if the Lord's not coming back, let's say he's not coming back for 100 years, then, then everything that we see now has to be tempered with that because there's going to be a lot of differences in 100 years. You think how much we've changed in the last 100 years, how much are we going to change in the next 100? Okay? But I believe even that is part of the prophetic mentality. That's why I don't think it's going to be another 100 years. But um, So a lot of the stuff that Netanyahu has been doing and is doing um, has been very profound prophetically. I think a lot of things he's doing plays right out in Scripture. Even some of the, um, the economic stuff, the European economic stuff, the, the uh, Egyptian economic stuff, even some of the, um, the uh, peace stuff that he's had with Saudi Arabia and stuff recently. Uh, Saudi Arabia is not in this list either. Why are they not in this list? Okay, Saudi Arabia is really, at least on the surface, not down below. Okay, remember, Saudi Arabia was the people that actually planned the 9-11 attacks. And, uh, and our government kind of made a financial deal with them and said, uh, we won't go after you, um, give us the names, help us a little bit, we won't go after you. And so, because Saudi Arabia is big, and we just didn't do it. But Saudi Arabia planned the 9-11 attacks um, and trained the guys in their country, okay? Uh, Osama bin Laden was, was training his guys in Saudi Arabia and financed by Saudi Arabian money. Now, Saudi Arabia, at least on the surface, is being very good to Israel. And they don't, they, they're not in the list. They don't appear to attack Israel. According to Ezekiel 38 and 39, they're not, they're not attacking Israel. And so a lot of the things that Netanyahu is doing with this is pretty profound. Um, and I think, I, okay, so if you go back to the map and you see the white parts, it's almost like you could color it all. And then Netanyahu has erased Egypt and it's white now on that map. He's erased Saudi Arabia. It's white now on that map. You see what I'm saying? Um, some of those countries around there are not as, they're not part of the list, and they're not aggressive against Israel anymore. And, then, and I think the timing of all this is part of Ezekiel 38. Again, if the Lord's not come back for a 1,000 years, we're all giving guesswork right now. The map could change a 1,000 times, and, but it's going to still look very similar to this at the end times. Does that part make sense, what I just said? No matter how much, if it's, even if it's a 1,000 years and the map changes a bunch, we could put this map up again um, a 1,000 years from now, and those countries are still the countries that are going to attack Israel. That doesn't change, right? Um, just what they may be called then may change. So, did I answer the question? Sort of. Anything else? They do. Uh, again, this goes into the category of what? But they do. Saudi Arabia has a rabbi. They, who would have ever thought that? Like a head rabbi over Saudi Arabia. There's so many things in the world scene that are changing right now. And they're changing quickly. Saudi Arabia, guys, this is how it plays into the one world religion. Saudi Arabia is one of the main pushers um, for all of the stuff that, was, that is being built about... Um, the, the, the temple, the Islamic temple, the Jewish temple, and the Christian church. And they're all built on the same property. I've showed you pictures of that before. You know what I'm talking about. Saudi Arabia was the big push for that and the financer for that. 
This, this is, none of this stuff is coincidence, in my opinion. Everything is setting itself up to be what Scripture says. There has to be a one-world religion. There has to be a one-world government. We don't get to choose that or change that. Scripture's clear about that. What did we see at, in COVID for the first time ever in the history of the planet? The entire planet resolved about, around one concept. They all got on board. It was dumb. It was wrong. But they all got on board. That's the most important thing to take away from COVID. Not the, not the sickness. Not, it's that the whole planet coalesced. We've never seen that before. Right? Okay, I'm, I'm going over. Actually, you guys are going over. Um, I'm just here. So, so here, here's the thing. This is always the question I ask. How should we pray? What, what do we pray? How do we pray? Insight, discernment, I think is good. Discernment is big, guys. Don't assume everything I'm saying here is true. Study it. Read it for yourself. Write down the details. Write down the information. Study it and see. I might be wrong about this stuff. Discernment? What else should we pray? Yeah. I, I think um, Hebrews uh, 12 here, keep your eyes on Jesus. Who's in charge? I had somebody ask me about this yesterday about spiritual warfare and stuff, and and they said to me, I think if, if we just keep our eyes on Jesus, it'll all work out. We don't have to learn about the demonic and all that stuff. And I said, you're totally right. I think the church spends too much time sometimes studying on the demonic. Just focus on Jesus. He'll take care of the demons. Focus on Jesus. I think that's our responsibility here. All right? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for... Lord, first for writing this stuff down and showing us. God, thank you for prophecy. Lord, help us to really get it right. Um, help us to see the things that we're supposed to see, even if we're only supposed to see them right now. Um, God, help us to see the things we're supposed to see in Scripture. And um, Lord, help us, help me not to, to reach out and search for things, but just stay in your Scripture. Lord, we, we want to know what you want us to know, not what just our own human plans. So guide us and lead us with all of this. Help us to walk in you. Help us to walk in your spirit. Help us to walk in your word and to, to truly know you, to truly, truly know you in the name of Jesus. God, we thank you. We thank you for this uh, new year that you've given us. We're going to see you do some big things. I know this, Lord. I know what you put in my spirit. We're going to see you do some big things in our lives and in our families our hearts, our spiritual walk. And so, Lord, help us to keep our eyes on you. Keep our eyes on you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. All righty. See you Sunday. Three services Sunday, 8, 10, and noon. You can go to all three, but you don't have to. <laughs>